Welcome to Guest of the Year. I'm the host. My name's Mike. This week's guest setlist curator is host of the MAPS podcast, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, writer, cognitive dissonant, and yogi, Zach Leary. Zach blazed his own path as a digital marketing expert for the world's biggest brands, including Apple, then gravitated back to the family cause of being a psychedelic integration specialist and advocate after becoming a mentee of Ramdas. Links to Zach's website and the MAPS podcast are in the show notes. Welcome, Zach. Hey, Mike. Good to see you guys. Thrilled to be here. This week's prize pack provider is Antigua Threads. Antigua Threads provides the highest quality belts and leather goods on the market while empowering local Guatemalan artisans to help keep their craft alive. Antigua's belts are woven by Mayan women using a traditional 3,000-year-old technique on a foot loom, an incredibly simple wooden machine. The weavers were all taught this craft by their mothers and grandmothers, spanning generations. Unfortunately, it is an ancient traditional craft that is dying out in the younger generations. Antigua Threads' mission is to help keep this tradition alive by purchasing looms, expanding weaving output, and giving these women more business to earn an excellent living for themselves and their families. For more information on this vital cause and these incredible belts, check out the link in the show notes. Here's how the game works. We'll play the first part of a Grateful Dead live track, and each contestant will use the messaging system to silently guess which year the performance is from. Contestants, who are all on a video conference together, can message in their guesses at any time during the clip or in the 10 seconds after it concludes. Whoever is furthest from the correct year is eliminated. The last two deadheads standing will hear three tracks, and whoever is closest to the correct years in aggregate wins. We've got a returning champion, Pat, here with us, and we'll meet the rest of the deadheads in a moment. But first, without further ado, the Grateful Dead. It's not because you missed out on the thing that we had to part. Maybe you had too much to fail. 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 Just overplay your part. Don't shake it, don't shake your dream. Used to be the heart of town. guesses are in it was shakedown street at the spectrum in philadelphia on april 26 1983 zach tell us about that shakedown for me uh 83 through 86 kind of murky years some shows are total gems you know i mean out of this world some are pretty murky you know and and you can tell you can sense the dynamics in the band and jerry's health and definitely their um how should i politically say this their beverage of choice was changing and you could hear it the music but shakedowns from you know 83 84 you know the famous one at uh providence in 84 is unbelievable i didn't want to pick that one because i thought you know we know that one is pretty obvious um but you know i love what brent was doing in in this shakedown using the clav 
uh, the clavinet. I thought that's pretty funky, and you can really hear Bobby and Brent really syncing up, creating a really cool, funky groove. I always like this show. I like the shakedown. I like what Jerry's kind of doing with his vocals. So I thought it would be a good place to start. It seems like their beverage of choice, alcohol, probably mixed with cocaine, makes musicians not listen to each other, while psychedelics, your field of study, Zach, makes musicians listen to each other more. Is that an accurate interpretation? Well, there's two ways to answer the question, one through the lens of the Grateful Dead and one through the lens of the rest of us. You know, I think um, cocaine-fueled rock and roll is generally like, you know, pretty big uh, kind of, you know, cock rock monster guitar solos and kind of, you know, pretty egocentric. But a lot of good music was made, no doubt, or, you know, some also good dance music. But with the Grateful Dead, it's it's. Um, you know, because cocaine is more of an egocentric drug as as opposed to a community drug, like say LSD is or, or mushrooms or something. But with the Grateful Dead, it's different. And like, um, you know, both Bobby and Phil have talked a lot about it in, in interviews. Um, you know, the DNA of the Grateful Dead, you know, starting from the acid tests on was created through playing on LSD and what that did for the sonic tapestry and viewing the band as one hand with multiple fingers. So that was already within them. Like it's the DNA of the band to really learn to listen to each other and to really feed off of each other and to, you know, have sort of that sixth sense of what the next guy is going to do. So you can just go right into it, especially during the jams and the transitions, you know, and that was already pretty locked in to the Grateful Dead by 83 and pretty hard to break even by introducing when you introduce cocaine and, and alcohol. So there are still some really good moments where, you know, the synchronicity is there, the improv is there, the unspoken sort of six-headed beast that was the Grateful Dead that all worked together. I think where you notice the changes, the tempos are pretty high, <laughs> you know, especially during the shakedown, you can you can sort of feel the rush there, especially at the opening of the sets when like they literally just did a line and walked on stage. You could feel kind of, you know, it's 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 pretty fast, you know. That's a, you know you can feel them rushing, pushing the beat a little bit, but it also makes for some pretty you know greasy kind of unhinged magical moments. So I'm not here to judge, you know, at all. I think the Grateful Dead did what they needed to do to stay on the road for us for 30 years, you know. So if they had to change the beverage of choice, hey, it hurts some members more than others, but um, sometimes it hurts the music, sometimes it doesn't. This is a case where it didn't. It's a good show all around. As Steve said the other day, once you've been through the door, you're through it and yeah. you can still communicate even with all that other stuff going on. Yeah. Two people got 83. Oh, right. Um, ben and Pat. We'll go to our returning champ, Pat. He is 57 from Staten Island. It's a really nice pull, Pat. Why 83? Uh, Zach really touched on the important points there. It really was a quick tempo and Jerry's voice is sounding weathered. And I think there's such a big transition uh, voice-wise between 82 and 83. And um, the other thing was that when he comes in with a solo, he doesn't hit it. You know, it's a little hesitant. And uh, he's like kind of, you know, working up to it. And also the keyboards, uh, it wasn't quite plinky plinky, uh, Brent, you know, beginning to introduce some new sounds. So that took out, out of the first couple of years of, 80, of the 80s. Right on. Way to go, Pat. Welcome back. Ben also got it exactly. He's 42 from Bend, Oregon, by way of Boyertown, Pennsylvania. Nice pull, Ben. What were you thinking? Uh, Pat really hit a lot of the points. Um, 
tempo, quality of Jerry's voice. Yeah, 82 to 84, I feel like noticed a pretty big shift there. And that was just kind of saying 83 to me. Uh, Brent on the collab as well. As uh, Pat was saying, kind of takes it out of the first couple of years of the 80s for me. But tempo, the I guess the quality of the recording as well, and just kind of the way the drums sound just speaks kind of 83 to me. What was going on with the drums? Uh, more, I guess, just the the way that they are in the recording. I guess like trebly, kind of tinny. That along with the tempo just kind of speaks to that time. Yeah, time. I mean, that's the thing with that era of shows. It's like, yeah, again, a lot of good shows, but I do feel like the sound is kind of thin. You know, it's kind of tinny and trebly. That's why I like the late 80s and 90s so much because that, you know, the same lineup, but the sound is so full and rich and it's just like this big, rich, thick beast. And yeah, it's pretty trebly and like, you know, a lot of gear changes around that time too. You know, they're filling with all the new gadgets and rack mounted stage gear and stuff like that. And I think, you know, it, it affected the sound in some ways, but good stuff. Almost mirrors like the condition they were in physically. Just a little, <laughs> you know, just a, yeah. little, uh, a little emaciated. A little emaciated, yeah. Bill is also on the next round because he guessed 84. Mike guessed 92. Bill, 50 from Delran, New Jersey. Welcome. What were you thinking with 84? Just a hair off. You know, you started with uh, something in the spectrum. And if I would have uh, got bounced on this, I'd never would have lived that one down. Because my high school yearbook, that was my home away from home was a spectrum. I mean, Jerry was ripping on that. And that's really what gave me some pause. Brent really sounded uh, more electric and a little bit flatter than I think Pat said, like, you know, in the early, early 80s, late, you know, 79, when he comes in, he's real, you know, sounds like real high in the mix, real belly. And I didn't hear that. And Jerry's voice wasn't completely weathered yet. So I was really between 83 and 84 and just, 83 to 87s are, are, are tough for me. And I think for a lot of people, but uh, it's been really between 83 and 85. So I just, you know, split the difference and went 84. Great. You're on the next round. Mike is 71 from New Mexico. Tell us about 92. Well, at first I thought 85. So I would have been eliminated anyway. And then I really was straining <laughs> not hearing Brent. Yeah. I just, uh, Whoop. <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> right. You're the real winner here because as you were telling me, you were at uh, Cornell 77, May 8th. Could you tell us about that and also how you uh, got into the dead? Well, yes. Um, matriculated at Harper College in September of 1970. And of course, the only thing people were talking about was, oh, you should have been here in May. So anyway, <laughs> that's... That yeah. got me on the bus. And fortunately, you know, I grew up and I, I spent my formative years um, from 1970 till uh, 1984 in upstate New York. So I got to see the boys many, many times. First shows I saw were in Utica in 1973 uh, in March. Great shows. And uh, yes, I, I was in Barton Hall. It really happened. It was very loud and boomy. And my favorite thing to say about um, the second set is, you know, if you listen, Jerry does miss a verse in Fire on the Mountain. Didn't dampen anything. I don't think we realized it at the time. But if you listen to uh, the show now, it's like, oh, 
Jerry, wait a minute. There's another verse. What happened? So, but I feel very uh, fortunate. I got to see them a lot. And I feel very whoops that I whooped on the very first round. But, you know, one of my favorite things to do is listen to uh, Sirius XM and try to guess what was the year. And sometimes I'm right on. And tonight I was well off. So good luck to the rest of you gentlemen. And I'll enjoy listening and, uh, and, and watching and pretending that I'm still in it. Well, before you go, I was wondering, when Cornell 77 became widely regarded, did that come as a surprise to you having been there? Did it stand out before that? Yeah. Uh, no, it was. Uh, that was no surprise because when we left, it was like, holy effing shit. Whoa. That, I mean, yeah, the Morning Dew, it was, it was the most special show. I mean, you know, I, I saw them a number of times, several dozen times. And yeah, just to answer your question, it was a classic from when we left. Love that answer. Thought you'd be like, no, I don't know. It just seemed okay, but I love that. You knew it. Oh, that's great. The poetic license around that show specifically, I think it changed a lot over the years. Like when the Betty Boards first came out and that and that show got really popular, like both Mickey and Bobby at back then, like, you know, maybe this is the nineties, like they claimed like that they didn't even remember the show. Like that it wasn't in- <laughs> And now 30 years later, since the Betty Boards came out, now they're all like, oh, yeah, we, it was one of our best, you know, Spring 77. But I remember specifically Mickey saying he didn't even remember it. It's like when those Betty Boards first got discovered. You remember they were discovered in the process, you know? And so I think that show has kind of grown, a, you know, it's kind of grown its legend over time. Rightly so. Hell of a show. There's one more story if you want it. Is, uh in 1971, a good friend uh, transferred from Berserkly to Harper and brought some orange barrel that Owsley had manufactured. Wow, the original stuff. That's, uh, that's great. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Ben, Bill, and Pat are on to the next round. Zach's got another pick. are in it was slipknot at boston garden on october 1st 1994 that was kind of a fun slipknot zach tell us about that choice well you know i started seeing the grateful dead in my first show was 87 but i started seeing in earnest in 88 and um you know 94 95 were pretty bleak let's face it they were not too many good shows 
you know, I definitely had fun, a lot of them, but, um, you know, there were a lot of shows where you went and I was like, oh, this is, this is getting tough, you know, just keeping it real. It was, you know, it was hard to see the, see Jerry take that turn. But this show, you know, that, um, from the garden, October 1st, 94, Boston garden, it's a really good show. And the help on the way Slipknot Franklin's is excellent. It is on fire and Jerry hits all the marks. He nails the Slipknot doesn't flub it. The Franklin's is especially emotional. The help on the way has a lot of energy. And uh, I think by 93 on, Vince was starting to find his way, you know, and he was kind of starting to kind of get it a little bit, you know, in my opinion, God rest his soul, because Vince was an incredibly sweet guy. But I think in uh, 90, 91, he was overplaying a lot, you know, it's kind of loud in the mix, a lot of notes. Um, but by 93, 94, he was really getting it. Some really tasty licks and some really supportive fills and um, um, good piano playing as well, but good synth playing. And yeah, and I just really like the intensity of of uh, the help on the way, the Slipknot and the Franklins from that show. Um, you know, they're kind of like a an old snake just slithering through, you know, with a lot of sound, a lot of power. The drums and the bass are really on fire. and um, I kind of just, you know, you can real, really feel the intensity of, um, of the playing. The sound is really good. The mix is really good. And it's just a standout show from, from the later years. So that's why I picked it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how many people pick shows from 94 or 95 for Guess the Year. My thought is probably not too many. So I thought I would throw one in just to have fun with it. Yeah, not too many. Okay. I, I, maybe we've had one ninety five and two three ninety fours, so that's why I thought it was a really fun choice too. Yeah, Ben and Pat both guessed ninety two, and they're both on the next round. Bill guessed nineteen ninety. We'll go to Ben. Yeah, ninety two. Tell us about it. Yeah, that's uh, that era is tough for me. I don't, I don't find my way to it a lot. What I kind of latched in on listening to the keys really hard. I'm like, okay, just hearing one just hearing Vince basically and you know to Zach's earlier point about just the the quality of the recordings that we get in the in the 90s like it just had a really full sound I skewed a little earlier because man they were hot and <laughs> playing really well together and connected and I'm like doesn't feel like yeah, 94 right. to me but yeah skewed a little bit earlier but yeah pleasant surprise Pat you also guess 92 yeah just um just everything that Ben said. I think you talked about it on an earlier episode uh, a few shows ago, how around that time, 93, 94, they really changed the way that they mixed the sound or the way that things were miked uh, because it, it really, you know, it, it, it's so full and you can hear every single drum and even the little ting, ting, ting of the, in the middle of the cymbal. Yeah. So that's why I was leaning towards that. But, Again, exactly like Ben said. I said, "Oh, that's a little too. This is a little too tight for 1994." Well, that was my one big curveball show. So, I'm, I'm <laughs> Bill, ninety, very reasonable guess. Tell us about it. I mean, the sound—it was just so enormous. I couldn't make out Vince very well. I, I really got fixated on the drums and and Phil's playing because he was just so hot. And I was like, "Wait a minute." I got to hone in on the keyboards here and I couldn't hear two. And it was as, as Ben and Mike, Ben and Pat said, it was a little tighter than 
later on. So it sort of kept pushing me early. You know, I said, I'll go at 90 because I didn't think it was Vince. I didn't hear two, two keys. So it's a tough one. Bill, how'd you get into the dead? So, um, I grew up a metalhead, you know, going to my first concert in 1979. I begged my father uh, to take me to see Kiss. So I went and saw Kiss and later on found out that uh, Judas Priest opened. So I'm a six-year-old kid and going to see a Kiss show in, in, in the Spectrum in Philly. We'll go to see heavy metal shows every month. And my dad was a barber. Next to his barbershop, there's a limousine company. And he used to drive pig, you know, rides to make extra cash to send me to school. So he drove everybody, Clapton, Dylan. Uh, my dad looked just like Michael McDonald. So he drove the Doobie brothers. And one day, you know, he's like, uh, I'm going to go drive the Grateful Dead. You want to get out of school? And I was like, Shit, yeah, I'll get out of school. Let's go. So this was 88, 9, 12, 88. And we went and picked him up in Philly, drove him underneath the spectrum. I got to hang out backstage with him. And um, I went out where the flyers go onto the ice, you know, Sixers and what have you. And I'm used to like these, you know, smoke and fire and Slayer and Megadeth and all this stuff. And they opened a show with a Jack Straw. And immediately, I didn't get it musically at all. But the amoeba of the crowd just moving in unison. I was like, what, <laughs> what the hell is this? You know? And I'll never forget it till the day I die. There was a guy in like the fifth row standing next to me. He's looking down. Cause I was young. I was 15 years old. He's like, how are you enjoying the show, man? I was like, Oh, it's, it's great. And I was like, I, I, I didn't get it at all. <laughs> you know? So I actually went backstage and, and watched Monday night football the Cowboys and the uh, Cardinals were playing. So, <laughs> and I, I got to go on the side stage and watch it. I didn't get it, you know, and then went to University of Delaware, got a fraternity and met a guy. And we just were like minded and said, yeah, I want to see what this is all about. And then I listened to without a net, the Althea, like the first, that first Jerry riff coming in, just, I, I couldn't believe it. And I was hooked ever since, like, you know, to the point of obsession, like I'm sure everybody else is here. So, uh, you know, I saw him, you know, throughout the 90s. Um, first really started going to see him in 92 up until probably that spring tour in 95, I guess it was. So I had a, you know, good three, about three year run of, of going to shows. So even though they weren't the, the best of shows, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't know what we were really hearing, you know, as far as to compare it to like 77, we were there for, you know, obviously the, the circus, but you know, the show as well. And we couldn't really pick it out, you know, but listening back to those shows now, it's like, man, we hit some, we hit some clunkers and we hit some ones that were best shows I've seen, you know, absolutely on fire. But so that, that, that started me on that whole jam band thing. You know, they, they, they bit me with the bugs. So that's how it started. When you went to that show, was your dad excited to see the dead? So Did he, or is he more? And yeah. my dad, um, no, he never was into music. My dad was sort of into, into the scene of it. He wouldn't sit and listen to it, but he liked the idea of it. And he liked, you know, those, that was his type of, of crowd. And, you know, he, he wrote Harleys and, and all that sort of stuff. So he, he had that. He, he introduced me to the Beatles when I was a kid. So that's, that's where I got my love of music. And, and that's why I like Kiss so much as a kid. Kids were into Spider-Man and Batman and, 
and whoever else. And I was in the kiss because I wanted something that would rival my dad's Beatles. And, um, so no, he, you know, he was backstage and you know, I got pictures with, uh, Jerry and, and, and Brent and Bobby. I mean, I remember him calling me out, like he's smoking a cigarette with Jerry. He's like, this is my son, Billy and, and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool story. I, I really wish, you know, it's funny because I, the only way I knew what show it was is because of the fact that it was Monday Night Football. And I remember the teams playing Monday Night Football. And once, you know, you got the internet and you could look back through things. I was like, man, and it's a, it's a hot show. 9-12-88. It's, it's an incredible show if you guys don't know it. It seems like the dad and Jerry specifically enjoyed hanging out with people like your dad. Not necessarily like sycophantic people, just kind of like Harley dudes that could hang. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and and my dad wouldn't know anything about anything, and he wouldn't treat Jerry any different either. He's just just hanging out. He's going to have a smoke with him, and you know, he'd probably have some you know quick stories to tell him or whatever. But my dad met Clapton, Dylan, so many different people. It, you know, it was it's pretty crazy. That's a, that's a great origin story, Bill. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing this, Mike. I really liked it. It's it's a lot of fun, man. Appreciate it. Good luck, guys. Ben and Pat are in the finals. They're going to hear three songs. Whoever is the least number of years off in aggregate wins the belt from Antigua Threads. Let's hear Zach's pick. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Yeah. The guests are in. Good morning, little schoolgirl at Calaveras County Fairgrounds at Angel Camp, California on August 22nd, 1987. So tell us about who was on guitar there in that show and that track. Yeah. That- it's one of those shows like you either know it or you don't, you know. Um, it's uh, it's uh, Santana guesting. Uh, when I was growing up, a little teenage 14 15 year old deadhead i had that tape and i just loved it i just fucking loved it uh, and carlos also plays on the watchtower the night before and just kills it absolutely shreds it 
And um, yeah, I, I wasn't there. Um, I just was starting to go to shows there. But, you know, they were, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead were on fire. You know, Jerry was back in 87 through 90 were just impeccable years. Some of my favorites, you know. In the later years, um, when there were guest guitar players, there's not too many where the guest guitar player gets to shine. You know, there are some early ones like Dwayne Allman, you know, playing Love Light and in Dark Star early on and Dickie Betts and, you know, in 1970, 73 and things like that. But later on, anytime they had a guest guitar player, you know, Steve Miller playing Morning Dew at, in Las Vegas or Santana again, John Cipollina, you know, it could be sort of like they were in the mix, but they couldn't really find their way. Santana found his way, you know, and he really takes that song over and the Watchtower from the night before. In hindsight, I do wish I kind of chose a little bit more of a, included a little bit more of Bobby's vocal going into the jam, because um, I think Bobby's vocal is incredibly strong. It's a good 87 show. Well, to me, that sounded like Carlos Santana playing Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, because I knew it was Carlos Santana playing Good Morning School, Little Schoolgirl. But Pat, you were closer. You guessed 1985, Ben guessed 1990. What did you hear going on? So first of all, I heard... Um... Brent with a Hammond organ. And for me, that always speaks mid 80s, you know, smack dab in the middle of the 80s. He seemed to really utilize that a lot. But Zach said, you either know the show or you don't. I am in the latter. I, I did not know. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that show. I put my guess in before the, the guest soloist, but it wouldn't have helped anyway. I did not know it, but I, I I'm, I'm, I'm keeping notes as I listen to this, you know, to this uh, uh, show, and 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 you know, I have been since I started listening, and so that's definitely something I'm I'm going to follow up because that's just uh, that's just a really neat thing. Did you uh, do you have a guess of the guest soloist? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I I I had. I mean, no. I knew it wasn't one of the one of the the main two guys. I knew enough of that. You know, and and you know, someone doing something funky with a, you know, with a new effects pedal. I knew it wasn't them, but uh, I, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have been able to nail it down. Now, Ben, you guessed nineteen ninety. What did you think was going on? Oh man, I had no idea what was going on. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, Santana was the only pool that I had out of that whole thing. So listening to it, just the the choice of that song itself. Trying to remember when uh schoolgirl came back into the repertoire i'm like man i just i couldn't remember when that happened bobby uh just his intonation when he was singing was just odd or unusual to me pretty low key on the keyboards for a while but kind of heard brent a couple times and then yeah when santana comes in you're just like all right what is going on here there were a couple kind of santana squeals there towards the end where I'm like, kind of sounds like Santana, but man, I had no idea. <laughs> Good Morning Little Schoolgirl is definitely a Pigpen song. And Zach, I'm wondering what you make of Pigpen having not gone psychedelic adventuring with the rest of the band. And if you feel like that contributed to his drifting away from the band before he passed away. Oh, man, that's a, that's a big question. You know, I think, um, I mean, yeah, we all know, you know, Pigpen essentially drank himself to death um sadly from what i i've always picked up and 
the few conversations I've had with people who know a lot more than I do, who are, you know, on the inside, um, a huge part of it too, is not just kind of the disconnect with psychedelics, but that, you know, starting in 68 and 69, the band was getting really good, really musically, insanely good. And they were no longer just kind of like this blues kind of jug band kind of, you know, fumbling through Viola Lee blues or, or, uh, I know you ride or something and they were turning into something really, really special. And Pigpen musically did not make that transition. As far as a musician goes, I'm not, I love Pigpen. Don't get me wrong. This is not a diss on Pigpen, but as far as his actual musical chops go, he didn't have that. And so he was kind of left, you know, he would come out and what he did vocally and performance wise during Love Light and, and Hard to Handle and things like that, Caution, were just so cool. You know, I mean, just like 40 minute stream of consciousness, rap singing stuff that was just so, so hip and so cool. So added such a great flavor to it, but he couldn't keep up on the, on the hand, you know, and I think that there was a little bit of a, of a pain caused when like, you know, the first they brought in Tom Constanton, then Keith. And that was, you know, that's kind of a, an indicator, like, look, we need someone on keyboards who can, who can jam, you know, who can play the parts and who could do what he couldn't do. Um, and that had a hurt, I think, you know, I think I'd imagine that hurt would hurt a little bit and your, and your kind of place in the band was relegated to these few songs where you could let loose vocally, but the rest of the time there wasn't really much for him to do. Um, and the identity of the band just changed so much. I'd imagine that caused him a lot of pain. And, you know, those are tough demons, uh, especially when you're an alcoholic or a drug addict of any kind. It's uh, got to face your demons and walk through them. If not, they'll, they'll kill you. And sadly, Pigpen didn't make it. But um, his contribution, I think his, uh, his identity to the Grateful Dead is such a core part of their DNA. I wish I had, had saw them, seen them with him. What a guy. Zach, you clearly know a lot about the Grateful Dead. Um, I'm wondering how you got into the band and how you ended up accruing so much knowledge. I don't know. I don't think I'm dissimilar to any of you guys, really. It's just when I started going, um, you know, I was young. I was 14 and really started going in earnest, like regularly when I was 15. Um, went on tour when I was 16 and 17. And it just was, you know, one of those things where it was all in, you know, it was my life. It was literally my entire life, you know, and my whole friend circle revolved around it. It's what introduced me to psychedelics, what introduced me to the work I do today. I'm also a musician, so I'm a bass player and it introduced me to music um, and just opened up my world, you know, as you can't, there's not much more you can say about it than that, you know, and opened up my spiritual connection as well, my sense of community, sense of tribe, sense of travel. And, um, but for me, first and foremost, it was always about the music, you know, first and foremost, me and my friends were uh, rail deadheads. We'd camp out if we needed to, to get on the rail. I was privileged enough to have uh, free tickets and, and, and passes for most shows I went to, but that didn't allow me to get in early. So me and my friends were, um, we would take turns every night, every show, like who's going to sprint and go put the blanket down at the rail. We would switch off because it was always about the music for me, you know, and we'd fill side and uh, really paying attention to what they were doing musically, you know, and because of that, um, it's, you know, it's a whole language, it's a whole 
art form. And I mean, the greatest thing they ever did was record every show for us. And, you know, like you guys, all these years later, you know, I'm still finding new things. I'm still finding new shows where I'm surprised and hear something new. And to this day, I'm still, I still do my research and hit archive.org and, you know, and listen to Sirius XM. And yeah, I'm just still as into it now as I ever was. So, yeah. Why was it important for you to be on the rail? Gosh, I guess my answer for, for that now, I still sort of hold the same sort of like criteria for going to a show. If I'm far away enough to where I can't see the facial expressions of the people on stage, I'm too far away. If I'm in the back and I'm looking at the screens, I'm too far away. I need to be in range to be able to actually see the facial expressions of the people on stage. You know, because me and my friends were just, we were all musicians and really kind of nerded out on the gear, on what they were playing, you know, how, like, oh, how was Phil tonight? You know, what's, what's Bobby doing? Oh my God, look at those inversions that Bobby's doing during eyes. I mean, insane. And being able to see it so close, you know, it just felt so intimate. And it also, um, being that close to it also, um, kind of kept me closer to the sound and to what was going on on stage rather than to the, the circus out in the crowd. Not that I love the circus, don't get me wrong, and the spinners, I, I love it, but that kind of takes me a little bit away from the band. And I just liked really seeing what they were doing, you know, up close. And it was important to me and still is, you know. Actually, maybe you can answer the question that was broached last week by Gabe. Pat was here for it. It's how did they signal when to come back from a jam? <laughs> yeah. I think that just comes from, you know, so many years of, of playing together and kind of, uh, I mean, Jerry said something really interesting about Grateful Dead music. He said, it's got the same instrumentation as rock and roll, but it's not rock and roll. It's Grateful Dead music. And if you really think about that, that sounds like a really simple thing to say, but it really implies a lot. You know, it's a style of music. That's why, you know, what, there's over 400 active Grateful Dead cover bands in America today. Some of them are incredibly popular on tours of their own because it's a style of music that you learn to play. You know, like you learn to play jazz standards or, or blues standards. Learn to play Grateful Dead music is kind of the same thing. And they just had that style of playing and that unspoken intuition of knowing, okay, this jam's around its course and it's Bobby's turn to start the next song or Jerry's turn or Brent's turn, you know, and they just, yeah. I mean, what we did find out um, later, thanks to Phil and some of his interviews and in his book, like in the later years, it wasn't as spontaneous as we think it was, you know, like they did, they did talk, you know, like be, during drums or something, they would huddle backstage and go, okay, we're going to go, you know, whatever the other one I will take you home morning dew. And they kind of just did talk about it a little bit or kind of before second set. Okay. I think it's Scarlet Fire Night or something like that. So they didn't know where they were going to kind of start and maybe end. And then the rest was kind of up for grabs. Um, you know, and having kind of just some loose sort of pillars in the sand to know, okay, we're going to start here and end here. But the rest we can sort of make up as we go along was what they were so good at. And as impossible as it is to believe about the Grateful Dead, it's like somehow they managed to keep their egos out of it, out of what was happening on stage, which is a really hard thing for a popular rock and roll band to do. Every rock and roll band has egos, you know, and 
they generally kept that out of it. You know, if, if Bobby wanted to play whatever, playing at the band again, Jerry, they would just do it. They would show up and, and do it and support the other guys and what they were doing, you know. God bless them for that. It's not an easy thing to do and just to really support your bandmates unconditionally and such a great thing to watch. Well put. Beautiful. So Ben has three points. Pat has two. The idea is to be as low as possible. So Pat is up by one. Still two songs left. Let's hear Zach's next pick. the other one at Century 2 Convention Hall in Wichita, Kansas on November 17th, 1972. Zach. Uh, yeah, I am um, by you know, 72, 73, 74. Um, you know, when it was a single drummer, you can really tell the influence that um, jazz was having on the band. I mean, it is modal improvisational jamming in the style of John Coltrane and Miles Davis to a T. I mean, if you listen to that jam from the other one and go put on My Favorite Things by John Coltrane and listen to McCoy Tyner's work, it's the same thing. Literally, it's the same thing. It's the same approach to improvisation and to jamming around a couple chords and one mode and just seeing where it takes you. And, you know, that is the magic of the Grateful Dead. You know, they're not a rock band. They're not a jazz band. They're not a country band. They're all of these things put into a blender. And that other one, I've always had a special place for that other one. It just, I mean, I, I focused on, on the Keith part because I thought the Keith's piano playing was just so jazzy and hip and cool. But if you listen to the rest of it, I think it's a, maybe a 22 minute other one. Um, goes on for a while and they really just kill it and go in and out of some really spacey and fiery segments. And again, yeah, it's just to me, it's when kind of the jazz influence was really starting to show musically. And the competency of the musicianship shows that this is a seriously talented band that could play anything. And by 72, that was really starting to show. Yeah, I just, I like this show. I, I don't really ever see it on any top 10 lists, but I don't know. I think it's in my top 20 list for sure. It's a little bit more obscure. It's not an official release of any kind, but I've always thought it's a good one. Well, Ben got it exactly and Pat guessed 73. So um, they're tied going to the final song, my favorite thing. Ben, nice pull on the 72. Tell us. You know, uh, latching in on Keith at first... I think just kind of where he was in the mix and just where everybody was in the mix kind of coupled with like Zach was saying, just how incredibly jazzy it was. And 
you know, you get a lot of that in, in 73 as well. I feel like listening to the quality of the, of the soundboard, I feel like 73 is a step towards 74 in terms of, you know, how the phase canceling mics kind of affect the vocals and just kind of how Billy's kit sounds. To me, it was more in that kind of 72 realm and just his fills and just playing like a, a freaking maniac. Are you able to tune into what some call the 72 sound? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like Jerry's guitar kind of clues into that a little bit, but there wasn't a whole lot of that in this particular clip. But uh, at, there was at one point where I feel like Keith has a very distinctive piano sound in like fall 71. And there was a, there was a minute there where it was kind of like that a little bit, but then, um, you know, the, the soundboard recording had a little bit of hiss to it. It wasn't as bright as I feel like a lot of the recordings that you would hear from fall 71. And, um, yeah, I don't know, just really just that, that jazzy moment to me really hit its peak in fall 72, just the way that they would clue in off each other and, and kind of add their contributions to the jam. Do you go in for those, uh, like 25 minute playing the bands? <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Man. Fall 72 <laughs> playing in the bands or out of this oh, world. Man, they're just something else. Yeah. Love them finding their way back after 35 minutes or whatever. And do yeah. That and oh my God. It. So it's exhilarating. <laughs> Pat 73. Yeah. So, you know, when I hear the just straight out jazz band, I always think of 1973. And uh, also the the recording did sound, I thought, a little bit thin, a little hissy, which I always uh, equate with that time. I think I have to get into my head the fact that it wasn't like they just turned on a switch and went from one style to mm. another, that there, were, that there was a transition. So I just, I was a little too far ahead with the needle, but uh, that's another one I just wrote down. That's, that's something to check out later tonight. That's a, that, what, a, what a fantastic show. Before we go on to the last song of the finals, Ben, can you tell us how you got into the dead? Uh, yeah, kind of started with some CDs, uh, Skeletons from the Closet, American Beauty and Shakedown, uh, having those. I would say found my way into live dead, mostly through Fish. Growing up in Pennsylvania in the late 90s, that was kind of my first foray into just live improvisational music and really latched onto that. Um, started getting into uh, show trading in the brief period where tapes were kind of out and uh, starting to trade CDs kind of right before, you know, high speed internet kind of took it to file servers and everything. So I remember a couple summers of just trading as many fish shows as I could and kind of digging into the music and kind of got into the dead a couple years after that into college. And yeah, it's been a wild ride. Thanks, Ben. You are tied with Pat going into the third and final song of the finals, barring a tiebreaker. Let's hear Zach's pick. Don't hang your head and let the two time roll. Brass shack nailed to a pine wood floor. Come back later, gonna let it show. And I say, 
Jimmy at the Dane County Coliseum in Dane County, Wisconsin, on February 15th, 1973. Zach. Yeah. If you listen to the whole whole song, it's uh, an unusual rendition of Road Jimmy. More up-tempo, for sure. Even Jerry's kind of intonation on some of the, the lyrics are a little bit different to, than what that song turned into. And I just... I don't know. I just listened to that show recently and that road Jimmy immediately stood out to me. It, it was different. You know, it's still kind of a work in progress for them. And, and uh, you know, early versions of songs, um, they're very different than they what they became later on. And I think that one is just, uh, yeah, it's unusual. It has a, uh, the little hook in the, uh, the riff between the verses and the chorus is a little different than how it became later on. And Jerry's vocal is just a lot more upbeat and, and brighter, you know. I kind of consider Road Jimmy to be not quite a ballad, you know, but it's kind of definitely a mid-tempo song. And to hear it with, you know, an extra 5, 10 BPMs, it's unusual. So um, that's why I picked it. Great, Zach. And I'm going to make these guys wait another minute because I wanted to, I just want to say I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the MAPS podcast and MAPS in general. And MAPS podcast is the one you host. And I'm wondering if you could tell everyone about you know, your mission at MAPS and what you guys are exploring? Yeah. Um, well, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not a MAPS staffer. I am a, a, a cheerleader and a soldier and a, a teammate. Um, I support the MAPS mission and I do the podcast uh, purely on a volunteer basis because I love doing it. And uh, it's a great way to support the MAPS mission and to give back and for me to stay selfishly, to stay plugged into the psychedelic community in that way um yeah i mean maps was started 30 years ago by rick doblin um and the main mission especially within the last 20 years or so has been to legalize mdma as a treatment for ptsd and that is finally on the horizon it is a real it's gone through the phase three clinical trials through the fda and we're right at the finish line now of seeing that as a reality and in the phase two and phase three clinical trials, it's mainly um, the uh, the reason the efficacy has been so high is because um, uh, it's been treating the veteran population, vets and first responders who have largely, um, you know, come back from combat. And it's no secret that VA mental health care is less than desirable and the suicide rates of our vets is um it's extraordinary. It's a failure of the American system. And to see a, a treatment offer so much hope for that population, not just that population, anyone suffering from trauma um, is an extraordinary thing. And um, yeah, I think we're really at the forefront of uh, a mental health revolution, thanks to MDMA and to the work that MAPS is doing, but also for complete re kind of consideration and re perception of. Um, psychedelics in general and their use as a uh, a positive tool to both heal us and expand us and maps has been at the forefront of that i'm proud to be a part of it thanks zach links to um the maps podcast and zach's own website which has more information about zach's psychedelic studies masterclass, his upcoming book 
and a lot more. All that's available in the show notes. Did we have a winner? We do. Ben guessed 73, Pat guessed 72. Ben nailed it. Congratulations, Ben. You won by 1.4 to th- 3 to 4. Nice poll. Uh, man, I think what helped me out on that one is the recent May 73 box and just kind of listening to that. There, there were a couple elements of uh, that mix that kind of reminded me of that. Zach, your comment about just the brightness of Jerry's vocals during that particular time for Road Jimmy kind of clued me into that a little bit starting to hear Billy and especially with like the hi-hat thing starting to get a little flat as you go towards 74 um it wasn't quite where I feel like it is in 74 recordings so just uh the tempo of the song yeah just kind of felt like 73 to me what a pull Jesus how are you so tuned into the hi-hat are you a drummer Ben <laughs> I'm not a drummer no no and it, yeah it, I think it's just uh, the way once the wall came in and just the the way the microphones sound on the recordings and um, a lot of the instrumentation, it loses a little bit. I don't even know how to, I have no musical terminology to describe this, but um, to me, it just starts to sound a little, a little flat. Congrats, Ben. Really nice work. Pat, going back to the 72 well, tell us about that guess. Oh man, I was in the neighborhood. I just couldn't find the house. It just uh, <laughs> <laughs> obviously this was really early, and I just you know I was thinking, well, when did they first start performing it? And I thought it was prior to seventy three, so that's why I just went as early as I could. But uh, this has been a fantastic show, and Ben, like congratulations! And uh, it's it's so cool just trading these little bits of knowledge with like minded people. You know, it really just uh, expands on the the idea that it really was a community and that the the fans were as much a part of the music as the band was that it really was you know more much more than just give and take it was a it was a symbiotic relationship and one needed the other to survive and this is proof of that that you know i mean how many years since the last actual real grateful dead show and uh and we can still have these uh discussions of you know, the hi-hat wasn't quite there, you know, so, so uh, it's, 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 it really is encouraging. It really is encouraging. And it, it just expands also on what Zach was saying that it's, it's not so much any one song. It's not so much the band. It, it just is a style. It is its own form of music. And, um, you know, it's, I, I don't think the investigation like this, and looking into all these subtleties will ever end. So uh, this is this is fantastic, and you know I'm I'm glad I found this show, this podcast, and the opportunity to be on. It's been great. It's been a total pleasure having you on, Pat. Thanks for doing it. Thank you. And Ben, congrats! Excited to have you back. And Zach, thank you so much for all your insight and your choices. As soon as this is over, I'm gonna go listen to that whole other one show. <laughs> uh, that was wild. Yeah, it was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank Zach. you so much for having me. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for curating, Zach. That was a great bunch of picks. All right, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Zach, for curating. All of his information, again, is in the show notes. Thank you to Antigua Threads, which is just about as home run of a, you know, a business that's doing good as possible, you know, empowering Guatemalan artisans and women who are keeping their uh, craft alive of creating these belts on footlooms, you know, like very, very simple footlooms. So cool and 
you know, what's most important, I guess, is that the belts are awesome, which they are. So, um, or very important. Uh, and they are. So you can check out more at Antigua Threads via the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. For all the show links, go to guestthear.net. If you want to be a contestant on the show, sponsor the show, or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at Shout out to Dylan for drawing the poster. James and Jack for helping out behind the scenes. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the amazing tapers whose recordings made this show possible. Congratulations to Ben on the uh, big W and to their contestants. Thanks for playing. And remember, it is all one song anyway. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bid you good night. Good night. Good night.